Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the world of wine, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. In this episode, we look at three Eastern Mediterranean countries, Turkey, Lebanon, and Israel. And they may seem fairly obscure wine-producing countries, and in fact, their wine history goes back thousands of years, right back to the beginnings of wine production 6,000 years ago or more. So historically, extremely important. And they are beginning to re-emerge um, into the wine world with some interesting wines. Although there are political and religious difficulties which have hindered the um, development of wine in these countries. And that kind of sums up the history of the countries. Historically, very um, difficult conditions politically and religiously to produce wines as well as just develop in general. But that wine is central to their histories, mentioned in religious texts going back thousands of years ago, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even wine does feature in um, the Quran, the Islamic text, even though um, alcohol is prohibited by Islam. There are some positive references to wine in the Quran, although the general interpretation is that alcohol is a bad thing, but of course Islam has been very important to the development of alcohol in inventing the distillation process for spirits. But overall, negative attitudes towards alcohol, which have hindered the development of wine production in the Eastern Mediterranean. In general, the climate of these countries is hot and often in deserts or near deserts, but there is a cooling influence from the Mediterranean and even more importantly, from altitude, high elevation, cooling conditions down so that cold quality wine can be produced. And over the last 20 to 30 years, the, the quality of wine in these three countries has certainly risen though, as I've said, hindered by um, political and religious difficulties. So let's look at Turkey, which is actually one of the largest grape-growing countries in the world, with well over 500,000 hectares of plantings. However, most of these grapes are table grapes, rather than grapes for wine. There are lots of indigenous grape varieties in Turkey, about 60 are commercially grown, although anything between 600 and 1200 indigenous varieties are grown in Turkey, depends on how you classify them. But it's those 60 commercial varieties which are important, as well as some international varieties which are planted in Turkey. So for many centuries, alcohol was banned under the Ottoman Empire from the 1200s onwards, and it wasn't until 1925 that the first commercial winery was established in Turkey. It was actually established by the, um, the state under the Ataturk westernization policy, where wine was seen as a Western thing and Turkey would become more European. And since then, uh, wine production has been a small part of Turkey's economy. And re- recent developments in Turkey, political and religious, have been a very Islam orientated, which certainly does not facilitate the production of wine or any other alcoholic drink. And most of Turkey's production is for export or for tourists visiting the country. But there are certainly some ambitious producers in Turkey wanting to make good wine. There's been a lot of modernization since the 1990s with the use of stainless steel and, and controlling the temperature of fermentation. And part of that modernization is to appeal um, to tourists and to exports. It has to be good quality. Important regions within Turkey include Thrace which is um, outside Istanbul, which is actually part of Europe. And this has a warm Mediterranean climate, similar to southwest Bulgaria or northeast Greece. And 40% of all wine is produced in this region. And Thrace is where the first boutique winery in Turkey, called Serafin, was established. And here there are all sorts of 
um, international varieties planted, including Gamay, Sanso, Semion, and Riesling, and also um, indigenous varieties such as Yapinyak, which is quite aromatic, and Tangy. Then on the Aegean coast, the Mediterranean climate, uh, where 20% of all wine is produced. Um, it's low altitude because it is near the coast and the yields are quite high. And here are Semillon, Grenache and Carignan are grown. And then there's also Anatolia, which has the most demanding of all Turkey's climates because it's further inland. And so it has quite an extreme continental climate with very cold winters, which can fall as low as minus 25 degrees C, and then very hot summers and long sunny days. Elevation is key here. Plantings are up to 1,250 metres. Indigenous varieties are important here. Narinje, uh, which means delica delicately in Turkish, is used for both table grapes and for wine grapes. And it's a white grape with high acidity, and it can be made into a dry or an off-dry style, quite floral and often aged in oak. For the black varieties, the one you're most likely to see, or the one I've seen the most outside of Turkey, is Okurgazu which literally means eye of the bull, and that refers to the size and shape of the berries, which are large, round and black. And this uh, produces medium-bodied, quite fruity, floral wines with medium tannins and acidity. These are quite approachable and easy drinking and fun. And this is a great variety which has a long vegetation period, ripening in late September. And these are fun, approachable wines. And then there's Bauatskere, which means throat burner. So these, these Turkish grape varieties do have quite dramatic names, quite literal names. And this has been likened to Tanat, with its high tannins, full-bodied, medium acidity. It's quite big wines. So that's uh, Turkey. Still a small wine production, certainly not central to Turkey's culture. But nevertheless, wine is made, and it is quite decent and worth looking out if you can find it. Then we move to Lebanon, where again wine has been made for millennia. Um, biblical references to Lebanon, um, Canaan is uh, Le Lebanon now, the Phoenicians as well, and also there's a temple to Bacchus which was built in the second century. So um, that kind of nice wine reference with Bacchus being god of all things, um, wine and drink and having fun. But in 1517 um, the Ottoman Empire took over Lebanon and alcohol production was banned. And it wasn't until, until 1857 that the Jesuits came into Lebanon and the modern wine industry was born. And this really boomed between the wars because Lebanon was under French administration so wine production and wine consumption um, increased greatly. And there is still a very strong French influence on Lebanon and its wine. But the country and the wine industry was brought to a halt by the civil war which started in 1975. And obviously making wine in those conditions was extremely difficult. And even, even now, the unrest and the lack of stability and peace does make um, making Lebanese wine uh, quite difficult. But producers have emerged and Lebanon has been led, has been helped by the popularity of the New World wines, although Lebanon is most certainly not New World. Kind of the re-emergence of wine, even though it's been slow and gradual, at the same time as the emergence of New World wine, has helped Lebanon. So most of the plantings are between Western Baca and Zale, uh, 1,000 metres in altitude. It's dry, with cool nights. The ripening is mid-September onwards. and No vineyard treatments needed because it is so dry and most of the vines are wire or bush trained. In 1997, as part of this re-emergence of Lebanese wine, the Union Vinicole du Liban was created to 
oversee and to administer Lebanese wine and to also create uh, regional identities. Most of the plantings are to Rhone and Bordeaux varieties. The most famous producer is Chateau Musard, which is a legendary producer making wines which are designed to be extremely age-worthy and often releasing them about 10 years after the vintage, if not more. Uh, this is owned by the Ochar family and has been since the 1930s, so going back to that boom between the, the two wars. And Chateau Musard's uh, wine, it's, it's flagship wine, is usually a blend 50 to 80% Cabernet Sauvignon, so a Bordeaux variety, and then the rest made up of Carignan and Sanso, so uh, Rhone varieties. So it's a really distinctive, unusual blend of Cabernet Sauvignon, Carignan and Sanso, which you wouldn't see anywhere else. It's noted for its volatile acidity, so one of the few great wines of the world that has VA, but is still considered of the highest quality. They de-stem their grapes and they use new French oak, which may seem standard, but when Chateau Mazar were doing it in Lebanon, it was very much a new thing. They also make um, a white wine, which again is extremely age-worthy, age and also they have a Mousard Jeune, both white, red and rosé, which is designed to be more approachable when young. A third of all wine is made by Chateau Cassara, and then the second biggest producer is Chateau Gaffrea, and those are producers that you may well see outside of the country. Exports are extremely important for Lebanon. Going back to those civil war conditions, it's not very easy building a domestic market, so exports are important, and a lot of the winemakers are trained in France. So again, that French influence, all important. So moving on finally to Israel, where again, winemaking goes back centuries and millennia, and of course, wine is mentioned in the Bible, going all the way back to the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament. Winemaking continued under Christian rule, but then was removed under Islamic rule. So again, again, we've got that religious tension. And winemaking returned in the late 19th century when Jews began to move back to what is now Israel. One of the most important people in the development of Israeli wine was um, Edmond Rothschild, the Bordeaux producer. And he went there in 1882 and had a strong influence on the development of, of Israeli agriculture, making viticulture part of the agricultural resettlement programme. Then in 1906, the catchily titled co-op Société Cooperative Vigneron de Grand Cave was established, which is now called Carmel, and that still accounts for 50% of production now over 100 years later. During the 20th century, the bulk of Israeli wine produced was kosher wine, which gave Israeli wine an extremely bad reputation. It now accounts for 15% of um, all wine made in Israel. And we'll go back to kosher wine at the end of this episode. There are now 20 wineries in Israel. Uh, quality has risen since the 1980s onwards. Uh, the right varieties being planted in the right places. Location key, mainly at altitude, um, to get that cooling effect of the high elevation. And also really good winemakers coming into the country, often from the US, in particular California. And the US is um, an extremely important market for Israel. It's actually the biggest market for Israel, mainly because of the large Jewish population in certain US cities. And also, um, parallel to that, a lot of vines are being planted because the conditions in Israel are dry and vines do not need as much water as other fruit. So it's an easier product to grow. So it has a Mediterranean climate. It's hot and humid during the, winter, during the summer. Irrigation is necessary, and it's usually drip irrigation that is used, and also the vines need shade to protect themselves from that hot sunshine. 
Harvesting is usually mechanical and done during the night when it's cool. There are six regions within Israel. Galilee um, is in northern Israel and is the best quality, and that's actually divided into Upper and Lower Galilee and Golan Heights. There's Shomron, which is coastal, south of Haifa, and Sharon Plain, which is the largest of all the regions. And between those three regions, that accounts for 80% of all production in Israel. There's also Samson, which is central coastal plain, Judean hills, which are mountains north of Jerusalem, which I'm, I'm seeing a little bit more of coming in out of the country, and Negev, which is the southern desert area. In general, the high altitude vineyards produce more elegant wines than the coast uh, because of increased acidity due to the elevation and the cool nights. Soils vary in Israel. Near the coast, they're sandy and terra rossa. On the hills, they're limestone chalk and quite stony. And then in the north, the soils are volcanic. Lots of um, international varieties planted in Israel, especially Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. And also Syrah is seen as kind of the rising star of Israel, maybe something that will push Israel into the international limelight. There is also a white grape variety in Israel called Emerald Riesling, which is a California crossing of Muscadel and Riesling. When this really dominated Israeli wine up until the 1990s, so most of the wine was white and sweet, but that's uh, really been transformed and now 70% of the wines are red, so Emerald Riesling is in decline, and that is probably a good thing. So to finish, let's look at kosher wine and exactly what it is. Kosher means pure, and this is a product which has been handled only by Orthodox Jews. And the wines, uh, the kosher wines, are actually suitable for vegetarians because the animal fining products are not allowed. And it, the wines conform to a biblical, biblical agricultural laws going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The vines must be at least four years old. The vineyard must be fallow every seven years. There can only be vines in the vineyard, so no other um, uh, fruit or trees. And then 1% of it must be poured away in a symbolic ceremony. Kosher wine got a really bad reputation in the, the second half of the 20th century because the wines were usually sweet and um, heavy and of low quality. And that's because most of these wines were being made in the US and the East Coast from the Concord grape, which has really high acidity. And that meant the wines had to be sweet to balance that acidity and so pretty low quality. Now kosher wine's a lot better, and there's no reason why kosher wine can't be extremely good, because it is based on laws dating back thousands of years governing agriculture. It just depends on the quality of the, the wine itself. And not all Israeli wines are kosher. Just because a wine is made in Israel does not make it a kosher wine. It's more to do with the religious surroundings. So those are the three Important Eastern Mediterranean countries with difficult histories, both religious and political, but whose winemaking goes back thousands and thousands of years and are beginning to re-emerge despite contemporary challenges as well. So thank you for listening. This is Matthew, and this has been Matthew's World of Wine and Drink.